Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. So glad that you made time today to take a listen to Pediatric Meltdown. I so appreciate your time. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Brown. Dr. Brown is a child abuse pediatrician at Bronson Children's Hospital in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She provides inpatient and outpatient consultations for children who may have been abused or neglected and works closely with Bronson's Sexual Assault Services to provide emergency care after sexual assault for children and adults. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at the Western Michigan University Homer Stryker School of Medicine. Dr. Brown completed her training and supervised practice in child abuse pediatrics at the Center for Child Protection at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She sits on the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services Medical Advisory Committee to Children's Protective Services and serves as treasurer of the Michigan Professional Society on the Abuse of Children. Dr. Brown has provided medical care to children's advocacy centers throughout her career and currently supports the Kalamazoo County Child Advocacy Center at Elizabeth Upjohn Community Healing Center and the Calhoun County Children's Advocacy Center at Bronson Sexual Assault Services. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sarah Brown. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am doing fine. I am enjoying having had the inauguration. That was just a real exciting event. I think regardless of what your political party is, it was just nice to take a breath and see something that was positive and fabulous fireworks. Yes, for sure. That was cool. So um, just wanted to talk a little bit about how you got into the work of childhood abuse and neglect and pediatrics. I think a lot of people would think, wow, I'm not sure I would choose that field. So how did that happen for you? Well, my story starts out when I was very young. I was raised in my biologic family, but when I was about one year old, my parents started taking in foster children um, and growing up with foster siblings uh, really um, alerted me uh, to the work, to the need. Um, and also very early on, I knew that I wanted to be a pediatrician. Uh, when I was in kindergarten, I had a pink hoodie that I would use as a sling or a cast uh, for people. So you <laughs> put it on, put your arm through the uh, double pocket in the front, and uh, I would take care of people. So I knew that I wanted to be a pediatrician very early on. And then another really formative experience was uh, my youngest sister was adopted out of foster care. And while she was a, a foster uh, child, uh, she got to go to the foster care clinic, uh, uh, medical clinic. And um, I was in high school by that point, and I would go with her. And the pediatrician who worked there just had a remarkable skill set in putting her at ease. Uh, she was one at the time, um, distracting her, making her smile and laugh um, in the middle of what I assumed to be kind of a difficult thing. So, uh, yeah, definitely mentors along the way. 
can make a difference. I was then just pl- planning to pursue general pediatrics and take care of um, foster care kids as an intentional part of my practice. But when I was a third year resident, I went to a conference about child abuse and neglect and met my mentor. And she said, hey, have you rotated in child abuse and neglect yet? I said, oh, <laughs> that's a whole rotation. She said, yeah, come come do an out rotation. She actually had a job posted at the time. So uh, I took the job while I was on rotation as a resident and the rest is history. Serendipity. And then you came to Kalamazoo because you had the opportunity to build a program. Yes, in a very exciting way. Um, My husband was working in Kalamazoo, commuting from where I was previously. um, And uh, Kalamazoo is a little bit of a smaller children's hospital, um, but really plenty big enough um, to clearly need a child abuse program. So it was pretty exciting to come and build something from the ground up. Very exciting. And we're so glad that you're here. Can you talk a little bit about how the pediatrician, family medicine offices can provide a safe place and how important believing kids is? Yes. um, We hear from kids and adults routinely when they share difficult things about child abuse, domestic violence. Um, For adult patients, sometimes it's things that happened way back when they were small children. But just holding that information and being okay with it, perhaps thanking them for sharing it or asking them a question like, how has that affected you as you've lived your life or how does that continue to affect you now? Sometimes that's all the therapy um, that a patient needs and it it can be very healing um, to have your doctor know that and be okay with that um, and just let that be a part of you. So it reminds me of a lot of work that was has been done in the adverse childhood experiences realm. And I think there's a huge overlap because of course abuse is a, a adverse experience. And I remember talking with Dr. Felitti, who was the original author, and he said that the asking is in and of itself therapeutic. And that has stuck with me that providing an opportunity to talk about what you're what happened, or even if you don't talk about it, just the fact that someone asked takes away the shame of what has happened. Um, Do you find in your work that sometimes healthcare providers don't always believe kids? And what's what's that like for a child when someone doesn't believe them? Well, I think the more common thing that we see, unfortunately, is that family members don't believe children. Um, And I think that we can understand that as a normal part of the grief process. When we hear something shocking and something that's going to change our lives, one of the very normal first reactions is denial. Um, And we see that with disclosures of child abuse. But what kids tell me after some time has passed, maybe, or when they're talking about something that happened to them previously, is that they could handle the abuse, but what they really couldn't handle and what was so incredibly hurtful was that their mom or their primary caregiver didn't believe them. Um, And that um, the the rupture in that relationship is really what caused the majority of their trauma. Um, So I think our role as healthcare providers really can be to help parents and family members come on board with the fact. And again, the, the power of small words, just saying, I can't really see any reason why your child would be making this up. I believe them can be very powerful um, to family members. And sometimes uh, the medical team has opportunities to see the child kind of at pauses or intervals in between what the investigative team or the therapy team might be doing for the child. Um, So just continuing that messaging on different days and in different environments um, 
I, I think that anything that we can possibly do to help parents and caregivers get on board with the fact that it happened and that their child is going to really benefit emotionally from being believed. Another thing I sometimes say to parents is you don't have to be 100% sure that it happened to meet your child's emotional needs. They need to know that you believe it enough that you are going to take steps to help them, that you are going to help keep them safe, that you are going to help them engage in therapy. Um, And you don't need to talk about your doubts with your child. You can have them privately. You can talk about them with your own therapist or the investigative team, but you don't need to feel 100% sure to do what your child needs from you right now. That is a very powerful message. I am wondering about when kids come to you, there's already a pretty good suspicion that abuse has occurred. What about for those of us in primary care, when we're sort of wondering or need to ask Are there some tips on words to use when you are suspecting something, or even if you're not, just opening the door? Yes, I think it's really important for kids to hear the message that um, you as their pediatrician are a helper and you want to try to help them with anything difficult um, that's going on for them. Um, I think the first step of asking about abuse that's just so critical is that the child needs to be alone. Early on in my practice, I really viewed it through the lens of you know, that parent sitting next to them, it might be the nefarious influencer. Um, And there's all these negative reasons um, to separate the child from their parents so that they can talk freely. But more and more, I've found that the converse is, is more true. When you have that close, affectionate relationship with your parent, and you're old enough to know that this is really serious stuff, and that it might really rock their world, it can be equally or more difficult to talk um, about what your concerns are, about what really happened, all of that kind of thing. Um, and I think that message to parents or, or kind of that attitude when you're talking to parents about separating a child um, to take history alone um, can be very helpful and reassuring um, as opposed to, um, you know, them maybe thinking that you're trying to say that they did it or that you know that they're bad um, and that's why you need to separate the child. So again, step one, um, get that child alone, um, even if they're very young. I think it's important, you know, close on um, before the exam or after the exam if something has come up, but definitely, you know, all, all of their clothes and, and things that they've brought with them close. Um, but then I think it's fine to be alone um, in the room with them um, and just asking um, as open-ended a question as possible. Um, tell me about how come you're here today. Or maybe the child has heard the mom give a chief complaint of um, a concern about uncle or whoever it might be. I heard that your mom's worried about your uncle. Um, Can you tell me about why she's worried? And then sometimes kids don't uh, have that crystal ball to know exactly what you're talking about. And you need to do a little bit more work um, to try to get them on board. Um, So um, forensic interviewing protocol or the way that investigators talk to children um, talks about that it's fine to narrow down your questions as much as needed to get the child on topic. Um, So you might have to advance all the way to your mom told me that something happened to your body with Uncle Johnny. Can you tell me more about that? Um, But if you have to go um, very specific uh, to get a child on topic, as soon as you prompt them to start talking, then you have to spin your wheels backward um, and go very, very open-ended again. Um, A child narrating 
are speaking for themselves is the most high quality information that you're going to get from a child. Um, so as long as they're talking, don't interrupt them. And that can be really hard. That's not really our style as medical providers, um, taking history about a more um, benign illness, maybe like a cough. Um, but if they're talking, let them go. Um, and, you know, supportive statements, just like having a conversation with adult, uh-huh, and then what, can you tell me more? Um, that's all great, but really that supportive listening and just as much as they'll talk, let them go. Um, and then um, if you're hearing things as they talk um, that you need to follow up on, then it's your job to make some mental notes like, oh, they just mentioned um, brother Kenny and I need to know more about him. Um, mental note, I've got to ask her about that at the end. Um, but really that goal of not interrupting as long as a child is narrating is important. You have such a skill set. It's so, um, it feels like it should be so intuitive, but it's not. And I think I, I certainly have to remind myself to listen to kids and to let them talk. I, I think that's a very important um, statement. I, I know sometimes when I'm doing a history, I think about with teenagers, just in the normal course, not when I'm suspecting anything, is just saying, has anything bad or scary um, happened in the last year? Have you had any losses? And sometimes that'll be enough. And I have to remind myself, especially when a kid's acting out, is to make sure that I've asked about, is there any abuse? I remember um, a young woman one time, teenage girl, that was suicidal and cutting and running away. And I don't know why I thought at one point it was like, has, has anything bad happened to your body? And she, I mean, yes, it had been going on for a long time. And, you know, it was, I mean, I'm glad that I thought of it. It wasn't, I was being a brilliant physician or anything. It was just like, oh, maybe there's something I'm missing. So I think it's important that we keep that in the back of our minds that anytime kids are behaving badly, that maybe there's something else. Yes. And I think some other points about um, sexual abuse, especially, is that children don't always conceptualize it as bad. They're often being coached to understand it as a secret or something fun that, that they do, just the two of them. So we really um, try to tend towards words like not okay or not safe and let the child define whatever that might be. Um, often it doesn't physically hurt their body when we're talking about um, sexual abuse. Um, and um, I also don't like the idea of introducing to them that I think it's bad. You know, we, we can kind of come about that in different ways in therapy, but just that it's not safe or not okay. That's very helpful. Thank you. I'll remind myself to change that language. I like that not safe. Has anything not safe happened to you or your body? And maybe asking that. Speaking of things that are difficult, what about genital exams? Um, is that something, if there is a disclosure at a primary care visit, should we be doing the exam? Should we take photographs? Should we refer them to someone like you, send them to the emergency room? You know, I know there's the whole chain um, that has to be kept for legal purposes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I think there's a whole algorithm um, to that decision process. Um, in Michigan, our law is that if you've been assaulted in the past 120 hours, which is five days, uh, that you can have an emergency sexual assault exam, have evidence collected from your body, and there's a system of payment for that. Every community needs a resource and uh, to be able to provide that to both adults and children. Um, 
across the country, things are pretty much in the uh, five to seven day range. Uh, for little kids, we really can't hope for DNA evidence at the end of that time frame, but technology is always improving. So sometimes we collect evidence in hopes that there will be some new technology that might allow um, us to get an answer in the future. Uh, the other part of that algorithm um, on time is that uh, the younger the child, the more speculative it can be. Um, so if they just had unsupervised contact with the person uh, who was doing this in, in the time frame, then that would generally, generally qualify them for an emergency exam. Um, then the other question is, are they having a medical problem with their body? Are they continuing to report pain? Are they having bleeding? Um, is there something that you need to address? That can be addressed by a sexual assault team, especially if you're suspecting that it's injury um, rather than uh, illness or infection. Um, but um, that's an important piece of the puzzle. Um, another piece in primary care that's really important is that we hear sexual assault and the wheels kind of can fall off and we become consumed with the high intensity nature um, of the problem and everything that needs to be done around the sexual abuse. But often kids just need some basic medical care. They need a UA to make sure that um, it's not a UTI causing their acute symptoms or things like that. Um, if a child is disclosing something that happened uh, months or years in the past, which is a very typical scenario for children. Children tell when they're ready. Um, and when they're ready can have all kinds of different definitions, but it often means when they're safe or away from their perpetrator. So if a child is disclosing about something that happened a while ago and they're not having any problems with their body and you anticipate that they're going to connect with a team that has a child abuse pediatrician or a sexual assault nurse um, to, write, to provide care to them, um, there's not necessarily a reason uh, to do a genital exam in the primary care office. Um, you don't need to do that to meet a standard of care or um, to provide complete care to them that day. If the child's old enough to, you know, really give it a good thought themselves, you could ask them um, if they wanted to have an exam, if there's something concerned about or, um, something that they wanted you to address that day. Who thought that we should ask kids what they want to happen to their bodies, right? That seems yeah, it's like okay an, yeah, for it's them an, to choose. Important point. Um, what about reporting. So we are, of course, mandated reporters. I found it, and I mean, I've been a pediatrician a long time. It's still confusing when something needs to go to um, Child Protective Services versus calling the police. And, you know, I mean, I know it varies probably from state to state. Are there some caveats about that? Yeah, so I'll speak, especially here in Michigan, but I think it's generally true um, that children Children's Protective Services only investigates adults who are responsible for children. So that includes parents and caregivers. In Michigan, it can include um, any adult living in the home who reasonably um, could be seen as um, being even just an occasional caregiver for the child, and then other helping professionals, right, teachers, and things like that. But if um, a child is assaulted by a stranger or, or even a close family member, but in a different home, and the parent or caregiver for the child acted appropriately, took steps to protect the child as soon as they had knowledge about what was going on, then protective services isn't necessarily going to pick up that case. So in terms of who do you call, I think it's important to also think about what you are going to report. 
and often embedded in a concern um, about sexual abuse or about any kind of abuse by someone who's not in the home is also a concern about how the parent or caregiver acted for that child. Um, so when you're making that call to CPS, it's important to stay focused on the actions of the person that you're calling about, the person that the law defines as CPS being responsible to investigate. So if a child um, got assaulted every time they went over to grandma's um, by a cousin, but um, the child had at least made some pr pretty clear overtures to mom um, over the years about what was going on and not liking it and being scared of that person and, and something happened to my private parts and mom continued to expose the child without any protective precautions over at grandma's. Then while you have a lot to say about the sexual abuse, calling CPS, um, the real focus is mom's actions. Um, and why that child may continue to be unsafe because of mom's choices. Um, another piece about reporting oh, is, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> um, another piece about reporting um, in terms of do I call the police, do I call um, protective services is when something truly emergent is going on. Um, something is happening in your office where you're fear fearful about um, the person who's with the child taking them out of the office. You really feel that there's something that needs to be addressed before they go. In that case, just from a practical perspective, I would call 911 and um, get the police who um, respond to your office location um, involved. The tricky thing about law enforcement is they investigate based on the location uh, where something is happening. So you may be calling about abuse or neglect that happened maybe even in a different county from where your office is. But if you need an emergency response because of something that's happening in your office, um, call the people who are closest to you and can respond via 911. You know, if it's that dramatic a situation, you're probably going to have multiple staff members working on it. And you can have another staff member calling CPS and also getting the CPS response going. But you you probably know from experience or hearing from your social workers that it's a, it's a time-intensive process um, to call something into protective services. You might be on hold for a few minutes. It probably takes a solid 15 minutes um, to report all of the demographic information and all of your concerns. In Michigan, we have a centralized office taking uh, the hotline calls. Um, so that information then needs to funnel down uh, or back uh, to the county where the child is um, and get an assignment uh, from a county worker um, who then has to drive to your location. So there's a significant delay even when uh, what you're calling into the hotline is identifiable as an emergency situation. So what about the situation where there's a question about a daycare provider and the parent brings them in because they're worried about irritation in the vaginal area, something like that, and there is enough reason to be concerned, where would that go? Would that be a police? Would that be a child protective services? In Michigan, the Children's Protective Services hotline is supposed to be one-stop shopping, so to speak. Um, so you're supposed to be able to call them and have them figure out all of the people who need to investigate. Um, in the case of daycare in Michigan, uh, both daycare licensing, which would be activated via the child abuse hotline because it's a different um, department of DHHS, would investigate and also the police would investigate. And although you would call the CPS hotline, if parents had acted appropriately, there probably would not be a CPS case. That is very helpful in clarifying that. How variable is it from state to state? Because there may be people that are listening that are in another jurisdiction outside of Michigan. So there are differences state to state in who is a mandatory reporter. 
But what isn't different is that doctors and nurses are mandatory reporters everywhere. There may be subtle differences in how your hotline works um, and uh, who you're supposed to call in what situations. So that would be an important piece to look at. I think the websites um, related to the hotline um, for your state um, are, are pretty clear on those details. So kind of on the looking for things and being aware, I know with infants that there are some things that are considered sentinel injuries. Are there some things that happen that should always be a red flag? So if you have a little baby who um, really is not independently mobile, you know, think the four month and under crowd. You know, they're not sitting up and tipping over, um, you know, really just their caregivers moving them around. Any bruise on their body needs to be taken very seriously. And unfortunately, most of them need to be evaluated for abuse. That doesn't mean that you make an immediate conclusion of abuse as soon as you see uh, the bruise in your office. Uh, The one thing that I would quickly consider in the office is do they have a toddler or preschool age sibling who throws things or, or did something else witnessed? Uh, that the parent can clearly communicate to you. Um, you know, if if you know the family fairly well and, and it's fairly clear that it was witnessed or very close um, to witnessed, maybe mom didn't see the toy strike the head, but she knows that the preschooler was throwing things and then she saw the bruise. Maybe you'd be reassured in that situation, but really otherwise, almost every bruise on a small baby needs to be evaluated with a skeletal survey and um, probably head imaging. And so they'll need a trip to the emergency room is usually the most practical way um, to make that happen. What can you imagine would be the conversation with a parent? Because, of course, um, you know, certainly if they're perpetrator um, or it's somebody else, the boyfriend, which is often the case. How do you talk to a parent about I'm concerned about this bruise and I think we need to have a little bit more investigation? How how would you phrase it? I actually don't recommend a lot of conversation about abuse in your office when you need to physically move a patient. I think it gets the whole situation off track and and um, makes emotions run high. Um, I would focus more on that there's a differential. Um, that it turns out that a bruise on a baby, while it looks so small and innocuous, it actually can turn out to be a really serious thing. Um, And there's no good way to know before we get you to ER and do that workup. You know, uh, I I had a baby with petechiae all over their face, like they had been strangled. um, And there was a very high intensity conversation in outlying ER before getting that uh, baby to the children's hospital ER. I thought, wow, this is an easy conversation when you say this could be sepsis, this could be a bleeding disorder. Um, You know, those are real possibilities as well. um, And it helps the parent to understand the urgency um, of getting to the ER and getting things sorted out. Um, Now, of course, some bruises are going to turn out to have a negative workup. and um, probably not be anything. Um, But what we're realizing from analyzing um, abusive head trauma cases and fracture cases is that babies with more serious injuries often have presented uh, for medical care um, for seemingly innocuous, um, tiny little things, um, and that uh, it's an opportunity to take things more seriously and intervene before the child has a more serious injury. I like that suggestion because it sort of takes the the pressure off of me and putting it in a um, adversarial kind of conversation and really, and, and it's not a lie. I mean, you're saying, gosh, this could be, I'm a little concerned about this bruise. This could be a, several different things. And I really feel like we need to send the baby to the emergency room so they can have some further testing. Does that sound about right? Have I captured that? 
Yes. I mean, I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying be disingenuous with these families, but I'm saying that a high intensity conversation about whether this was caused by abuse or not really doesn't need to happen in your office. Hopefully you're sending them to a children's hospital ER. Um, that's the best place to have a high quality skeletal survey. There's going to be a social worker and ER doctor there um, who are going to be ready to have that high intensity conversation, especially after the skeletal survey results come back. That's helpful. I I wonder what it's like for somebody in a very rural area who might not have quick access um, to a children's hospital. Any thoughts on that? I think that gets into some really tricky medical decision making. There is definitely a vocal group uh, who feel that skeletal surveys should only be done in children's hospitals. Um, I think it's clear that a pediatric radiologist needs to read it. And so it depends on what your options are. Um, If you have a pediatric radiologist who will overread or um, support your local radiologist, or as as health systems expand and buy up small community hospitals, um, more and more you can have um, x-rays at a small outlying hospital that actually are automatically read by a pediatric radiologist. But I would say that's one of the most important um, pieces of the puzzle is um, how to get pediatric radiology to look at that survey. That's really helpful advice. I I wish I'd had you in my ear over the past 30 years going, yeah, you might want to ask it this way, but hey, never, <laughs> never too late. So I'm hoping that listeners will have the advantage of hearing your recommendations. And it's just so smart. And plus, you're really a calm person, which I can see in the line of work you do is important that you don't let emotions run too high because it's such an emotional topic. What about the overlap between domestic violence and childhood abuse and neglect? We know from studies that it's at least 40 or 50 percent comorbid, and that's just what we can find, um, you know, within a a research setting. Um, So we know that it's an intimately linked problem, and it makes sense, right? Um, Getting violent with the people within your four walls who are closest to you, and actually it turns out that that your domestic animals, your pet, um, are a part of it, and the animal abuse um, is a piece of of family violence, um, we just know that that um, he- hearing about one um, is a clear indicator to be worried about the other. And we had talked previously about COVID, and I think we've heard on the news, and I know in working with folks from our ER and our PEDS ICU that during COVID that there has been an increase in cases of child abuse and neglect, and the severity has really gone up. And many of us are doing telehealth visits What about, you know, is there something that we need to be keeping in mind when we're not seeing a kid in person or a a mom or someone else that may be in a dangerous situation? I think probably the biggest point about telehealth is who's in the other room or who's just off camera. Do you know that? And is your discussion going to be safe depending on that answer? Um, So it would not be unusual for a mom who maybe even has already disclosed to you um, some coercive control in her relationship, um, and she's not yet um, made the decision to leave, because we know that it's a very complex decision, um, and that the uh, victim adult um, really is in the best position to assess what's going to be safest for her and her kids. Um, and when might be the right time to leave or what indicator might be the reason to leave. So there's lots of people um, who are continuing to live in situations that are at least coercive in some way and unhealthy. Um, So maybe maybe, uh, she's already shared some of that information with with you. Maybe you're already worried about her. Maybe you know that there's some indicators in the family. Um, 
remember to be really careful then when you're switching to a telehealth visit and uh, what might still be safe. So I think it would be good to have a matrix about um, do you have a population um, of kiddos and moms um, who need an in-person visit? And that social reason is just as important as the infectious reason for making a decision about location of care. And then if you're sensing anything during a telehealth visit, having a good innocuous line ready, such as I'm hearing some things that really um, would be best served by an in-person appointment. Um, You know, maybe it's for a social reason, but you'll use the excuse that you need a better physical exam, but um, delivering a a clear reason, um, but not something that would be worrisome to whoever's overhearing um, that you need to get them into the office for an in-person evaluation. I like that. I think being um, prepared to address some of these things is helpful advice. If you, because you're so good at asking these difficult questions, if you have a mom in the room and the dad may or may not be there or the significant other, but you are wondering if they're safe, how would you recommend that a primary care person address that? Because we, you know, we do ask about depression and things like that, especially with our young infants, but is there a kind of an easy line to just sort of say, hey, I'm just taking the pulse? Yeah, so I think a couple of important points there. Um, First, if there's any child, even if it's not your patient, but just a sibling, or sometimes it's even just whoever's getting babysat who came along for the appointment. Um, If there's a child who can talk in the room, uh, you got to get that that kid out because they're often dispatched as sentries, um, so to speak by the abuser um, to watch everything that mom does while she's out and about. So any kid who can talk has the potential um, to harm uh, the mom when you're talking about um, domestic violence. And the second thing is we're really moving, um, and I think the domestic violence sphere has done a really good job of moving the needle on this, um, that our goal in talking about it is not necessarily disclosure that that might happen. Um, But if we're supportive uh, caregivers to these families, the goal really doesn't need to be you tell me so that I can help you. Um, The goal really is um, I want to check in with you. I want you to know that I think this is important and I'm a person that you can talk to if you're feeling ready to talk about it, that I will offer you resources whether you're ready to talk about it or not. Um, So Um, universal provision of resources um, is really key. In patient talking groups, they talk about, please don't make me say everything in order to get the help. If you're offering help, just offer the help. Don't make me say. And then the last step of it really is being ready for that disclosure. Because of course, if we talk about it, some people will disclose um, and having something supportive to say at the end. Yeah, I think that's true for all of our screening stuff. It's not just it. It's it's not just like an exercise in asking. If you're going to ask someone if they're suicidal, you kind of need to know what to do about that. Um, right. Do you think that there is some reason for just routine screening? I mean, I know our ERs always ask, are you safe at home? Which my experience is they often ask with other people in the room. And so if I wasn't safe at home, I sure as heck, I'm not going to say it. But a lot of people don't really know what that means. Yes, I think what you can say in front of other people and can be very quick is something along the lines of, 
Your safety at home and in your relationships is very important to us. We understand that it can be a difficult topic. And so I just wanted to let you know what your options are. You can call me on the phone. You can come in for an appointment and say that you need to talk to me alone. And, you know, whatever options you might have in your office. I want you to know that we have staff that will take care of kids while you talk to me alone so that that's not a barrier for you. And just kind of leave it at that with the expectation that they're not going to disclose. And then it's kind of on them to give you a little hand signal or something or walk out into the hall um, after you to say, oh yeah, I want to talk alone today so that there's really no expectation that the conversation would continue in front of other people. I like that. Are there any just routine screening? Like, you know, we do an Edinburgh screen for anxiety or and depression in postpartum moms. Are there screening tools to routinely screen just on the front end, whether or not you have suspicions or not? I'm not as familiar um, with that area. Um, I suppose that there might be. And again, I think that um, filling something out on a questionnaire um, is often easier um, than a face-to-face conversation. So that would be a good thing to look at, whether there might be something that you could do in writing um, or um, on on your uh, web portal prior to the appointment. Yeah, yeah. I. I don't know of one either. I know there's some trauma screening um, things that have been developed to ask parents, um, but I don't know if something about harm to the parents is um, being asked or not. I You made me think of um, a movie I just saw, which is really excellent, called Herself. It's a, an Irish movie, and I think it's on Prime or Netflix, but about a woman in a domestic violence situation. And she had a code word with her daughter, and the code word was Black Widow. And that meant that the okay. child needed to go get help. And I mean, so sad that this child had to be pulled into it. And of course, it's a movie, but it was very um, realistic about, I think, why people are staying in situations and some of the things that happen in the court setting where the mom felt like it was, she was the um, the one that was the problem because she wasn't leaving. And when she at some point said, why aren't you asking him why he hasn't stopped? It was very powerful. So just an aside. I think we've had some good evolution in Michigan CPS um, to a model that's called the Safe and Together model um, that under that really understands that the victim parent is not the source of the problem. The person who chooses to get violent is the source of the problem. And that most victim parents are doing the very best that they can in making very calculated decisions about what will be safest and best um, for their child. Um, and if we can also adopt that humility of the parent being the expert um, about the best way to handle the situation and that we're here to support and we're here to provide resources, um, it really, it's a better way to connect to your um, patients and parents. And I think more satisfying to understand rather than be judgmental. I think this just underscores the incredible possibility of impact that we can have for families. I mean, it's not just about you know, routine ear exams. I mean, there are all these touch points where pediatric providers can help kids and families. You know, this stuff is difficult. And, you know, I I often tell families, you know, I think if we're being honest, all parents may have thought about, oh my God, I'd just like to hit my kid. But the difference is whether or not you do it. I mean, we all get our buttons pushed and get angry, but, you know, do you know when to stop? And I think knowing that those thoughts are not necessarily the same as the action. Right. Um, I, I don't think any of us are perfect parents. I certainly 
have not been. And um, there have been times, um, I remember a time when, I don't know, my daughter was just pushing all my buttons. And I just finally called my husband and said, you need to come home so I don't hurt her because I was so angry. And, you know, of course, I was horrified that I got to that point. But, you know, at least I knew enough to ask for help and to take a breath and step away. It's real, right? And connecting with our families that it's that it's a hard job. I think it's the hardest job I've ever tried. It's definitely harder than being a doctor. And yeah, it's a great way to connect with our patients. Kids are frustrating and knowing how to best guide them through their lives is overwhelming. And it's so easy to feel like you're making the wrong decisions or have messed your kid up. Um, and we're all functioning along a continuum, right? Some days are better than others. And we'd like to just keep the far end of that continuum out of the abuse and neglect range. Well, I think that's a really great stopping point. Um, I do want to know, I mean, this is hard work that you do. How do you take care of yourself so that this doesn't crush you? And, you know, I, I mean, I can just think sometimes it would bring me to tears. How how do you manage? One thing that I really think about is being the good part of the response. I can't change the fact that this happens. Well, then I think about that I need to do more prevention work. But quite honestly, I can't stop this all from happening. It's happening whether I think about it or not. And my choice is whether to be a part of the response or not. And I and I want to be a part of the response. I see every day that small things like smiles and words of support and telling kids that you think that they can get through this um, are such an important part of their lives that it's really an honor um, to stand beside them and do this work. That's very kind of you. I mean, I, again, I if I had a child that I was worried about, I would hope that I encountered a professional that had your skills and empathy and calmness. I mean, I think that that is really, you know, like, I got this. I know what to do and I'm here to help you and I'm not going to lose it because I'm freaked out by how terrifying or how bad this might be because some of it gets bad. Yes, I think um, families feel reassured by a matter-of-fact attitude. You don't need to put all of your emotion um, into every case. Um, But like you said, just having a plan um, for what to do, um, even if it's not the plan that's going to work out in the end, having an approach to helping your child sleep better um, or or giving a try on eliminating a really annoying behavior um, can make a big difference for a family and it's comforting. And I think one of the things that we can all do is to know who we can reach out to, who are our colleagues that could help. I mean, I know I've called you and said, hey, I'm not sure what to do. Is this something you should see? Who should I call? And it's been a relief, honestly, to um, have you hold my hand a little bit. And I I have certainly appreciated that. So thank thank you. you. Yeah. And I would say don't hesitate. Um, I may sound friendly, but there's a whole group of child abuse pediatricians who are really friendly and helpful. Um, And I've heard from people who say, you know, I'm in rural Pennsylvania. And so I called the team at CHOP and they were so friendly. They were happy to talk to me. I would just reassure you that that's the case everywhere. Even if you're four hours from a child abuse team, just reach out and say, I need help. We're happy to talk. Well, I think that's one of the reasons I went into pediatrics is because I think by and large pediatricians are lovely people, approachable, humble, happy to help. And so I appreciate my pediatric colleagues for sure. 
I was just going to ask you kind of my final question. If you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident or early in your career, do you have some advice? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Probably to relax and take things one day at a time. Life's not so serious. Um, We get through with humor and compassion and staying in the moment. I think that that's really helpful information right now. I mean, in the middle of this pandemic, I think we're all... um, sick of it, don't know when it's going to end. And, you know, you have to look for the small joys. And there have been some interesting silver linings. I think we do get to spend more time with our families. And and if it's a safe place, that feels good. So, you know, that one day at a time, um, relax. And I think particularly in the kind of work you do, that being able to relax and take a breath is, is helpful information. So a previous um, podcast I did with Dr. Martha Middlemist, uh, she participates in the Wellness Advisory Group. So I would recommend to any listeners that you go back and take a listen to that if you need some tips on how to take care of yourself or links. There's a lot of AAP, AMA resources on um, physician self-care and provider self-care. So I would refer to those. Well, listen, Sarah, thank you so much. Um, and I appreciate your your words. You are so chock full of wisdom and really great practical advice. So, so thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure to speak with you and your listeners. Thanks so much. And I'll see you soon. Goodbye. I want to thank Sarah for really providing us some important information that I wish I had known 30 years ago. I took pages of notes and I am hoping to share some of the most salient take-home messages with you. So number one, believing children is critical and it's important that the parents believe the child. When children aren't believed, those wounds are often lifelong. And parents don't have to know 100% that something happened. They just have to be open to that. One of the phrases she used was, you know, to a parent, I can't imagine why your child would make this up. Number two, about asking when you suspect child abuse. Make sure that you talk to the child alone and they should be clothed. Children often don't want to tell because they're protecting a parent's feelings. They don't want to upset the parent. Use open-ended questions and then move to more focused questions. And a way to ask might be to say, has anything not okay or not safe happened to your body? Number three, about genital exams. If an assault happened within the last five to seven days, An exam should be done urgently and ideally at a children's hospital emergency room. This way you maintain the chain of evidence. If it happened in the past, an exam at that time is not urgent unless the child asks you or would like you to check, but you should refer the child to a child abuse expert. Number four, what about mandated reporting? CPS or Child Protective Services is the one to notify if it is a concern that the caregivers are responsible or suspected of the abuse. If the abuse happened outside the family home or by a stranger, this would go to law enforcement. In this situation, the parents did their part to keep the child safe, but the abuse may have happened in another setting. If you have a difficult situation in your office where you feel like you can't keep the child safe, 
in order to get them to a higher level of care, like an emergency room, you may need to actually call 911 to keep the child safe and your staff. Hopefully that doesn't happen very often. Most states have centralized hotlines, and that's ideal because they can help sort things out for you. And certainly we have that here in Michigan. And you can always reach out to child abuse specialists to help guide you. And I know I've called Dr. Brown multiple times trying to sort out who do I call because it never seems completely clear to me. Number five, remember that child abuse and domestic violence occur together about 40% of the time, and pet abuse as well. If you're going to speak to a parent about your concerns for domestic violence, remember, don't make me say, just offer me resources. Someone may not be ready to tell, and you may not be ready to offer all the information they need, but you can let them know that you are a safe space to talk. It's important to talk to the parent alone because sometimes children are asked by perpetrators to report home about what was said. So you want to make sure that you keep that suspected victim safe. Telehealth it brings up some specific problems, and that is that you don't know who is off camera. So if you have any suspicions, it's important that you bring the child into the office and you can, you know, just say, hey, this is really something where I feel like I need to see them in person. Number six, when you suspect an infant injury, especially if they are under the age of four months, so something like bruises or a, a laceration. These children should be seen urgently and you always have a very high degree of suspicion. You may want to say something to the parent like, I'm concerned about this injury and that we need some more information. And you can even list some things in the differential, like could they have low platelets if there's bruising or an infection, and then send them down to the emergency room for that further evaluation, including a skeletal survey. And it might be helpful to call your ED ahead of time and let them know what your concerns are, but you don't need to get into that high-level conversation that can be confrontational in your office. Number seven, I asked Dr. Brown how she takes care of herself because this work is really hard. And she said, I'm the good part. I can't always prevent what has happened, but I can be a helper. I stake and I'm prepared to provide help. Her advice to her younger self, relax and take one day at a time. And I think that's really good advice for all of us. So I want to thank you for spending some time. I think Dr. Brown is quite brilliant in how she phrases things and just so easily states what needs to happen in a situation that's really complicated. So please take care of yourselves. I hope you get some rest and enjoy your families and do fun things. And again, thank you for all that you do. Be safe. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.